Only we'll pick up with verse 15 and uh, proceed to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> I read about an interesting book yesterday. I, uh, it's the winner, I understand, of the 2002 Christianity Today Book Award. If you haven't, I haven't read it yet. I've only heard about it and read reviews of it. But the long title is the intriguing part that I want to mention to you. The title of the book is this, If You Want to Walk on Water, You'll Have to Get Out of the Boat. Now that invites you to read, doesn't it? If you want to walk on water, you'll have to get out of the boat. Obviously a reference to Peter's experience where he, the Lord called him to dare to trust him and do the impossible and Peter was afraid. According to the publisher John Ortberg, that's the author, invites you to consider the incredible potential that awaits you outside your comfort zone, out on the risky waters of faith. Well, that reminds me of our text this morning. For here God is certainly pushing the sons of Jacob outside their comfort zone. And sure enough, they are terrified. They see tremendous risk. But God's purposes are good. He is molding and refining them according to his sovereign plan, which is exactly the same thing he's doing with you and with me. So let's read it. Think about it. Genesis 43, verse 15. So the men took the gifts and doubled the amount of silver, and Benjamin also. They hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare dinner. They are to eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and took the men to Joseph's house. When the men, now the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought we were brought here because of the silver that was put back into the sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as his slaves and take our donkeys. And so they went up to Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house. Please, sir, they said, we came down here the first time to buy food, but at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks and each of us found his silver, the exact weight in the mouth of his sack. So we have brought it back with us. We have also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put the silver in our sacks. It's all right, he said. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. Then he brought Simeon out to them. The steward took them in into Joseph's house and gave them water to wash their feet, and provided fodder for their donkeys, they prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon because they had heard they were to eat there. When Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house. They bowed down before him to the ground, and he asked them how they were. And then he said, how is your aged father you told me about? Is he, is he still living? And they replied, your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed low to pay him honor. As he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and 
looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. After he had washed his face, he came out and controlling himself, said, serve the food. And they served him by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that was detestable to Egyptians. The men had been seated before him in the order of their ages, the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. And we'll end there at the end of the chapter. Though it's by no means the end of the story. In the past, uh, in our study of this uh, long account, we call the Joseph story that goes from chapter 37 to the end of uh, Genesis, chapter 50. In the past, we've pointed out on several occasions how Joseph points us to Christ. All the parallels between the life of Joseph and the life of the Savior. But today I think we need to see that Joseph is even more than that. That Joseph is a picture, indeed not even just a picture, but an instrument of the God of providence. Dr. Bruce Waltke, the the Old Testament scholar, explains it like this. He says, Joseph's privileged knowledge and his control over his brother's functions as a microcosm of God's omniscience and his ultimate control over all. In other words, what he's saying is Joseph, in his dealings with his brothers, is a picture of God in his dealings with his people. He shows us how God faithfully, steadily works out his plan in all the details of our lives, though to us, Life may appear to be an endless uh, 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 bunch of contradictions, uh, ups and downs, and, uh, and uh, hopelessly disconnected events. And yet, uh, that's what it looked like for these brothers. But Joseph was orchestrating all of this to, 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 for a point, to, to some goal. And, and so God, the God of all providence, orchestrates the detail to bring us to, to his goals for us. So here, Joseph is a picture of, of God. Uh, Joseph uh, is an example of how God works. Now if this is true about Joseph being a picture of God, then we learn here a couple of things in the way Joseph dealt with his brothers. We learned a couple of things about how God deals with us. We learned uh, things about God's providence. Two things I want to suggest this morning. The first one is this. That mystery surrounds God's ways. Mystery surrounds God's ways. This week in my devotional, private devotional reading, I started reading the book of Job. You better believe Job Job felt this way. Mystery surrounds God's ways. What is God doing? Don't understand. And that's what Joseph's brothers learned as they experienced God's providence administered by the hand of this governor of Egypt who they didn't yet know was their brother. Mystery surrounds God's ways. Just think of the strange events that uh, they encountered here. When they first arrived at Egypt, they, in Egypt they made their way to the place where they knew they could buy food, and there was the man, the 
this one who they had feared, this one who had dealt so harshly with them, it seemed, demanded so much of them. Now they came uh, expecting this. They came uh, expecting to have to show him their brother that they had brought. They came intending to give him back the silver that had been mysteriously put in their sacks when they left. They certainly wanted to retrieve Simeon, their older brother. And then they wanted to purchase grain and get out of there and go back home. That was their agenda. But before they could do any of that, this governor says, probably an Egyptian that they didn't understand, says to his assistant here, uh, take these men and, uh, to my house. Well, they don't know what he said. He said something, and suddenly his assistant carts them all off and takes them. And away they go. They didn't get a chance to do anything. When they go, they realize they're going to this royal palace. They're going to this governor's house. And they are terrified. What does he, want to, what does he intend to do with us? Is he going to enslave us all? What's going on here? Joseph's ways with them were mysterious. Just like mystery surrounds God's ways. What's he doing with me? And then think of what happened next. They thought about this situation and they perceived that a trap was coming here. And so they quickly uh, went to the governor's assistant before they ever went in the house. When they first arrived, they, they went to him and and uh, they began to explain about the silver that was put in their sacks and, and how they're prepared to give it back. We brought it back. We brought additional silver to buy grain, but we brought this back. We don't know why it was in our sacks. They're, they're, they're clearly trying to ward off what they are sure is retribution for the money somehow going home with them. But again, the strangest thing happens in verse 23. The, the assistant says, I, I, I already received your money. There's no problem here. I was paid. Furthermore, he, he, he goes on to say, your God and the God of your fathers has given you this treasure. And rather than punish them, he, he, he brings their older son out and returns him. Their older brother, Simeon, returns him to them. How, what, what's going on here? How does this man know about our God? What, what do you mean he was paid? If we got our silver back, what's going on? What happened? This is baffling. Yes, just like God's providence often is, mystery surrounds God's ways. Well, the most mysterious event comes at the very end of the chapter, though. It eventually becomes clear that uh, the plan is that they are to eat here with the governor when he comes. And so the governor returns, and they prepare all their gifts. And they give him their gifts, and he speaks to them uh, quite uh, hospitably. Ask about their father, and uh, about their brother. And then he has them all be seated, and tells uh, the servants to serve the food. And they're all seated, and they're all ready to eat, and suddenly these 11 grown men look around and they realize they have been seated by order of their birth. Not something you would necessarily uh, understand when 11 grown men, who exactly was the oldest and the youngest, and they were astonished. What is happening here? Who knows this? 
This is too big to be a coincidence. What's going on? And once again, the way that Joseph deals with them points us to the way that God deals with us. Mystery surrounds his way. Dear friends, I know that we love the simplest kinds of things. We like nice, neat ideas packaged with easy-to-understand directions. And there's no place that we like it more than in our, in our thinking about God and, and his way. We love things that are three easy steps to God. Four things God wants you to know. Nice, packaged simplicity. But like it or not, everything is not so nice and neat. Indeed, we are dealing with the Creator, whose knowledge is unfathomable. Not just here, but in every detail of the universe. Indeed, all of mankind's efforts in science are only trying to figure out the mysteries of the Creator. So don't be surprised when mystery surrounds God's dealings with you. He's not just the man upstairs. He's not just like you, only bigger. He's not someone you will ever get your mind around where you can reach on the other side and say, Aha, now I understand. No, the scripture repeatedly points us to the mystery which surrounds him. A couple of examples, Isaiah 40, verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. Or in Job 11, verses 7 to 9, can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths of the grave. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. Well, this is a frightening reality for us as it was for Joseph's brothers. We are not in control. We often do not even know what's going on. We are dealing with knowledge that is too unfathomable for our little brains. We're up against the Lord God Almighty, and mystery surrounds his way. And so we, like these men of old, are often frightened with our circumstances. Cold chills of terror grip our souls. But that happens because we don't understand the second truth that we need to learn from this passage. And that's this. That God is showering us with grace. 
God is showering us with grace. You know, it's really hard to understand someone's motives, the deep intentions of the heart. Indeed, I think that's why uh, God forbids us to judge one another. We, we can assess actions, whether they're right or wrong, uh, truths, whether they're true or false, but we cannot judge the things of the heart. We cannot sit in judgment of motives. But what we think we know about one's intentions does determine our response to that person. And so when we think someone's intentions are evil, we become afraid or defensive. And when we believe someone's motives are good, we are comforted and assured. Well, in this account, these brothers assumed that they knew this governor's motives and that his motives were hostile. And therefore they were afraid. They were afraid of everything that happened to them. The whole text uh, shows them on edge, defensive, fearful. Actually, sometimes their humor was all, their, their, their fear was almost humorous. For example, when they were taken to the governor's house, according to verse 18, they thought, I quote here, he wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as his slaves and take our donkeys. Now think about that a minute. The prime minister of Egypt, who controls all the known food in this world in its time of famine, who rides around Egypt in a royal chariot pulled by the finest horses in the world, I'm so sure he is plotting to steal the donkeys of these nomads who are about to starve. But fear is that way, you know. It's irrational, for they misunderstood his motive. They assumed he was against them, trying to dream up what might he do against them next. And here again, Joseph teaches us about our relationship to the God of all providence, for we too misjudge his motives and attribute evil to him. He's out to get us. He's punishing me. When in fact, God is showering us with his grace. Isn't that what Joseph was doing with these brothers? Think of all the blessings he lavished on them. First, they were reassured about the money. It's been paid. It's not an issue. You don't owe anything. Indeed, God has given you treasure. He's showering them with grace. And then secondly, right when they thought they were about to be imprisoned, instead, Simeon, who had been held, is returned to them unharmed. They probably assumed they would never see him again. But the governor kept his word. Sent him back as soon as they showed up. Joseph is showering them with grace. And thirdly, they were taken into the governor's house. They weren't just taken in there as hostages. They were given water to wash their feet and to clean up. They were given food for their donkeys that they were so afraid were going to be stolen. In short, they're shown royal hospitality. Showered with good gifts. And then the governor arrived and began to talk with them. How they had come to fear and distrust this man. They were sure he was against them, but 
suddenly he's inquiring about their father. And he's blessing their younger son, their younger brother Benjamin, blessing him in God's name. Indeed, unbeknown to them, he is so overwhelmed himself with emotion that he has to leave the room to weep because of his compassion, his love for them. This governor is not out to destroy them. Though he is controlling the details of their life, though he has knowledge that they don't have, his intention is to shower them with good things. And finally, to their astonishment, a great feast is spread for them. Think about it. Yesterday, these men were facing starvation. And today, they're sitting at the feast in the prime minister's personal quarters. And there's food aplenty. Five times as much for Benjamin. Plenty to drink. Joseph showers them with grace. And isn't that what God is doing? Isn't Joseph a picture of the Lord and his providence here? God is showering us with grace to this very day. The late Donald Gray Barnhouse put it rather bluntly. Let me read what he said. He said, you are not a believer in Christ. You're not a believer in Christ. And yet you are still out of hell. That's grace. You are not in hell, but you are on earth in health and prosperity. That's the grace of God. The vast majority of us live in comfortable homes. That's the grace of God. You come home from your job and your child runs to meet you in good health. That's the grace of God. You're able to put your hand in your pocket and give the child an allowance. That's the grace of God that you live in such abundance. You go into your house and you sit down to a good meal. That is common grace. For today, a couple of billion people will go to sleep hungry. You do not deserve anything at all from God beyond the wrath which you have so richly earned. And if you think you do, you merely show your ignorance. And yet still, God continues to shower us with his grace. But like Joseph's brothers, we are terrified or astonished. Why? Because we don't know God. Just like they did not recognize Joseph. And because if we do recognize him, we know that we've sinned terribly against him as they sinned terribly against Joseph and would soon recognize him and be even more terrified. And still Joseph's purposes for them remain constant. He did not do them any ill. His design for them was only good. He was not driven by revenge for their sins against them. He only dealt with them in grace. And that's exactly how God is treating you and me. Though we are terrified at his ways and we presuppose the worst about his motives, he does not change and he does no evil. While we ride the roller coaster of emotion through life's highs and lows, his purposes remain the same to extend grace to undeserving sinners. And while we are often overwhelmed with the mystery, 
which we cannot comprehend, our Heavenly Father is working every detail for the good of his children. He is working as much in the dark, painful times as he is in the times of joy and comfort. For he is the God of all providence, and he is showering us with grace. So why would you resist him? If that's his intent, why would you ever withhold one thing from him? Why would you delay for one moment obedience to him if his motives are only merciful and gracious? And why would you argue and complain however dark the path might seem at this moment if you know that his ways are good? Why would you grudgingly follow and serve him as if it were a terrible imposition on you? Why? Well, only one reason. Because you don't know. Or you don't believe that this God is showering us with grace. In the text this morning, <coughs> we get a taste of God's grace working through Joseph with his brothers. But if you really want to see the splendor of God's grace, you have to look at the cross of Christ. Jesus was not just sold as a slave by his brothers. He was crucified because of our sin. But like Joseph, he did not seek revenge. Indeed, he did what Joseph could never do. He took the punishment for our sins. He was judged in our place. And there as Jesus died, God's wrath against sin was forever satisfied so that now there's no impediment to God granting forgiveness to all who trust in Jesus. In fact, he not only expunges our record of sin, he adopts us into his family and takes us home, much as Joseph took his brothers home. Not because we deserve it, or had anything less than evil motives or fear of him, or sin against him, no, but because God is showing us with grace in Jesus. Well, this morning I call you to come to him, and to follow him. As the scripture says, don't you realize that God's kindness is to lead you to repentance? I think one of the greatest hymns that I know is virtually a commentary on these things, these truths about God's providence. You know that I love this hymn because I, I, I refer to it pretty often, I suspect. I don't ever keep track. But it was written by William Cooper back in 1774. Cooper was a man who knew the dark travail of the soul. He was plagued with mental illness. His unbalanced mind finally drove him to suicide. But uh, he was thwarted in his efforts to jump off a bridge. So he went home and tried to hang himself. And unfortunately, the rope broke. So he said, I'll stab myself. And the knife blade snapped. Couldn't even kill himself. Talk about darkness. But a year after those sad e events, he acknowledged in this hymn 
the glorious providence which had worked for his good even in his darkest, darkest time of despair. Wonderful hymn. Let me just read you the words. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his gracious will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are filled with mercy and will break with blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sins, but trust him for his grace behind a frowning providence. He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Mystery surrounds God's way. No escaping them. We don't understand. Oh, but God is showering us with grace. So trust him. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for this example and the bitter experience of Jacob's son of both the mystery and the grace of your providence. Lord, we're so much like them, so afraid, trying somehow to cut a deal with you, not knowing what's going on, expecting the worst. Lord, grant us to understand the gospel the unfathomable love that you've expressed to us in Jesus. Lord, we'll never understand all your ways, but we can understand your intentions and cling to you and rest in you. And know that in Christ we have eternal life, that you're not against us, that you're for us. May that be our experience, we pray. Grant us the faith. In Jesus' name, amen.